0: science you can use the dr joe show on cjad 800 there's antimony arsenic aluminum selenium and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel neodymium neptunium germanium and iron americium ruthenium uranium europium zirconium lutetium vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold protactinium, and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium there's a trium, a trubium, so tell actibia, me rubidium, what uh, brum, uh, alternative medical brum, treatment it's so like derives its, its a name a from, a from a the Japanese a word a words a for a universal and life energy. Also, by law, gondolas in Venice must be of a certain color. What color is that? If you know the answer to either of those questions, 514-790-0800 is our number. You can also text to 514 Let me repeat, what alternative medical treatment derives its name from the Japanese words for universal and life energy? And I'm looking for the color of gondolas in Venice, and there's a law that uh, governs them. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, uh, myth from fact, and. we have uh, a tough time doing that these days because there's just so much misinformation and so much nonsense uh, that is going on uh, out there. My background is actually chemistry, and uh, I like to point out that chemistry is, I think, the central science. It ties the old, all the other sciences together because if you have an idea of what molecules can and cannot do then you can kind of figure out what is plausible and what is not in the workings of the world. Well, I want to tell you an interesting story today. I want to. Uh, it's a sort of a mystery story. All right, let's get going. It was a real puzzler. On autopsy, Dr. Ono could find no evidence of any prior condition to explain why the. 33-year-old Japanese woman died of an apparent heart attack that day back in 1986. While out with her friends, she was overcome by nausea and complained of a loss of feeling in her extremities. When she vomited violently, her friends called for help, but in the ambulance, they unfortunately developed an irregular heartbeat that could not be corrected by defibrillation, and she passed away. Since the death could not be readily explained, the police were informed. Upon questioning, the victim's husband revealed that he had been married twice before, and both wives had died, one of a heart attack, the other of myocarditis. That was curious. And suspicions were raised further when it was discovered that the husband had recently insured his wife's life for a staggeringly large sum. Dr. Ono now suspected poisoning, and his thoughts turned to aconite, a rapidly acting toxin known to cause ventricular fibrillation and paralysis. Aconitum napellus is a perennial herb commonly known as monk's hood, since its purple flowers resemble the hoods worn by monks. All parts of the plant contain extremely toxic alkaloids, with aconitine leading the pack swallowing just two milligrams of these compounds or one gram of the root can be fatal the toxicity of a crude extract of the plant known as aconite was already known to the romans who used it as a method of execution we know that shakespeare was aware of its toxicity specifically mentioning aconitum in henry IV. it is likely also the poison he had in mind with which love-struck Romeo committed suicide. While Aconite can account for paralysis and irregular heartbeat, there were a couple of problems with the poisoning theory. There was no way at the time to test blood or tissue samples for the tiny amounts of alkaloids that could have caused death. And there was also an issue with the time frame. The last time husband and wife were together was about an hour and a half before a collapse much too long for the aconite's effects to be manifested luckily though the police decided to keep some blood samples and just nine months later that foresight paid off a method of detecting very small amounts of aconitum alkaloids using the combined techniques of gas chromatography and mass spectrometry was worked out and they were indeed detected in the stored samples Still, this was not enough to connect the husband to the poisoning because of the time problem. But the police kept digging, and four years later discovered that the husband had purchased a bunch of Aconitum napellus plants. This led to his arrest and indictment for a murder. The investigation revealed something else as well. The accused had also purchased some puffer fish, a delicacy in Japan. Since the species harbors the potent poison tetrodotoxin, Japanese chefs are specially trained to remove the toxic organ before serving fugu, as the dish is known. When authorities tested the victim's stored blood, they found tetrodotoxin. Now, Dr. Ono had an idea. He knew that the toxic effects of aconitine are due to enhancing the influx of sodium ions into nerve cells, and that tetrodotoxin kills by starving nerve cells of sodium. Could the tetrodotoxin delay the action of aconitine? Could these toxins act in an antagonistic fashion? A series of experiments on mice showed that the toxic effects of aconitine were markedly reduced by the oral co-administration of tetrodotoxin. Based on the evidence presented, <clears throat> the husband was found guilty of murder, sentenced to life in prison. While he admitted that he had an interest in chemistry and that he had bought the plants and the puffer fish to experiment with, he maintained that he had nothing to do with his wife's demise. So, was he a clever chemist? Who had found a way to delay the action of aconitine and deflect suspicion from himself? Or was he trying to mix the two potent toxins to ensure a quick death, but uh, just happened to accidentally postpone it? I guess we will never know, <clears throat> but his uh, murderous <clears throat> plan did at least shed some light on the combined effects of aconitine and tetrodotoxin. Again, it's uh, you know interesting feature of this uh, story that both of the compounds that I talked about, that is the aconitine and the tetrodotoxin, are naturally occurring, and both of them are extremely poisonous. And as I've tried to you know emphasize this uh, many many times before, this uh, myth that natural substances are safe and synthetic ones are dangerous is just that. It is a myth. You cannot tell anything about the safety of a substance by its ancestry. Doesn't matter if it was made by Mother Nature in a plant or by a chemist in a lab. That doesn't matter. What matters is what the substance is and to what extent it has been studied and of course the the properties of a substance depend on its molecular structure so one can make some guesses based on molecular structure but whether or not substance comes from nature or from the lab is irrelevant in terms of determining its uh, its toxicity Uh, and of course uh, many natural substances can also be mimicked in the lab and then of course they are regulated as uh, as medications or or as drugs. And uh, of course, uh, until really uh, the last century, medicine had to rely on natural substances, natural substances from plant sources, because what else was available? Basically nothing. And uh, of course, the long history there of, of plants, uh, all the way back to morphine, which comes from opium, comes from the poppy plant. Uh, many, many drugs, uh, you know, come from from plants. The autumn crocus uh, gives us a, a, a drug that can be used to treat uh, gout, colchicine, and then obviously tetrahydrocannabinol, which comes from uh, cannabis. Uh, there are hundreds of plants that give us substances that can be used in, uh, in medicine. But of course, there are also hundreds of plants that give us toxins, such as aconitine and uh, tetrodotoxin. And these are extremely potent uh, poisons. Uh, tetrodotoxin is, is so toxic that just uh, a few micrograms of it can uh, cause paralysis. Many of these natural toxins, of course, have uh, also been used uh, uh, on the tips of arrows uh, in South America and in Africa, uh, so that hunters could poison their animals uh, because very often just uh, shooting an arrow into a large animal will not kill it. But if that arrow has some uh, poison on its tip, such as curare, which was used in South America, or indeed tetrodotoxin extracted from the pufferfish that animal will go down very quickly all right let's check what traffic is all about you're listening to the dr joe show i did get a correct answer to my question about gondolas in venice by law they must be black the gondola of course is synonymous with venice and they've been used since the 11th century in the city Uh, They are made of eight different types of wood and there are 280 different pieces about in one of these uh, little boats and uh, these are not light they weigh about 1.7 tons they're uh, very flat bottom boats and uh, they have to be painted black because of a law enacted in the 1600s before that time there was too much competition between nobles and this developed uh, as they try to see who could have the fanciest boat in the city so the law eliminated any of the grown competitions between boats so by law now they have to be black and there are only three adornments that are allowed they can have a pair of seahorses they can have a tail that curls and in the front they can have a a a bumper and that can be pretty ornate and that of course prevents the boat from bumping into things like other gondolas if you are going to venice and, and you want to try a ride in one of these gondolas i can tell you from experience you better open up your bank account because they'll set you back uh, several hundred dollars but on the other hand the gondoliers will sing to you and uh, generally they are pretty good singers venice is is an absolutely fascinating city Uh, it is uh, at risk because of the rising waters of of the ocean and in fact every night uh, a lot of the city gets flooded and uh, that happened when uh, when I was there on, on a cruise walking around at night, went out to a restaurant to eat and on the way back to the ship, all of a sudden, you know, we uh, get into water that was like knee deep in St. Mark's Square. That's how I found out that ha- that happens on, on many nights. Of course, there were some inventive people there selling uh, boots. Uh, to all the tourists who were uh, stranded, but Venice really is a very, very interesting uh, city, uh, to be sure. But there are all kinds of problems there with the rising level of the of the water. All right. Well, I didn't get an answer yet to the other question that I I posed. And that is about the alternative medical treatment that derives its name from the Japanese words for universal and life energy. If you know that, give us a call at 514 And that of course is also the number that you can call to ask whatever question you may have uh, in general about science. And uh, there, there of course are so many issues that crop up on a daily basis in, in, in terms of science about medications that are used, uh, you know, about the ingredients and cosmetics, about food that is controversies about artificial sweeteners. Uh, that's why, you know, it's so interesting to live in this world where we deal with science uh, on a regular basis because there's always something interesting that, that comes up. Uh, for example, hydroxychloroquine. Now, of course, you know about hydroxychloroquine chloroquine because there was so much talk about it during uh, COVID-19 as a treatment, and according to some, an effective treatment, in fact, a virtual cure-all. And you remember how uh, then-President Trump hyped uh, hydroxychloroquine and so did a large number of, of uh, so-called alternative therapists and even some mainline doctors bought into it. However, since that time, there have been a large number of studies, unfortunately, that have shown that hydroxychloroquine just doesn't work against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I wish it did, but it doesn't. But it is effective against malaria, a disease to which we do not give much thought as we sit in the comfort of our North American homes. Yet this scourge has probably killed more people than any other disease in history. Long ago, the Romans realized the affliction was particularly common in swampy and marshy areas and concluded that it must be caused by the noxious vapors being released by decaying vegetation. Hence, they called the disease malaria, from the Latin for bad air. Once the Romans thought they had identified the cause of malaria, they took appropriate action swamps and marshes were drained pretty soon their efforts were rewarded the incidence of the dreaded disease decreased actually though they should have called the illness malmusca for bad fly because it is really caused by a parasite transmitted by the female mosquito this parasite enters the bloodstream invades red blood cells and triggers the fever and chills that are characteristic of malaria unwittingly by draining swamps the romans had reduced the breeding places of the parasite carrying mosquitoes the first effective treatment for malaria was discovered by native tribesmen in peru long before europeans settled in america they had made the chance observation that swallowing the bark of a certain tree which grew in the jungle could cure swamp fever. Natives had been regularly availing themselves of the bark cure by the time the first European, the wife of the Spanish viceroy in Peru, known as the Countess of Chinchon, was treated with the bark in 1683. The Countess has been immortalized through the name given to the wondrous tree, cinchona. Jesuit missionaries who had come to quote civilized the natives of the amazon region learned about the miraculous properties of cinchona bark and introduced it into europe they were eminently fair about the distribution of jesuit bark as the substance came to be known pope's powder was another name for the same substance the poor received it for free but the rich were charged the bark's weight in gold The new medicine did not meet with success everywhere. During the 17th century, Protestants thought that the bark extract was part of a Catholic plot to wipe out Protestantism. Oliver Cromwell died of malaria rather than take what he called the devil's powder. But when King Charles II and uh, a son of Louis XIV were cured of malaria, acceptance of the use of cinchona bark became general by 1820 the active ingredient in the bark was isolated and named quinine from the indian expression quinquina or bark of barks eventually a number of quinine analogues were synthesized and introduced into medicine and they were more effective than the original quinine had fewer side effects and one of these introduced in 1955 was hydroxychloroquine. Well, since then we have a number of other uh, anti-malarials. Uh, one artemisinin, actually was uh, discovered by the ancient Chinese, and it came out of ancient or traditional Chinese medicine. Malaria though, is still a problem today. It affects millions of people every year. And uh, there's a constant battle against it. I mean, DDT was very effective when it was first introduced, saved a lot of people. But of course, DDT has other consequences. It interferes with all sorts of uh, animal life. Mosquito nets do work. And uh, those are um, given out uh, in Africa, in places where the mosquito populations are, are endemic but still the battle against uh, mosquitoes goes on tires believe it or not are a big problem you know used tires are very often stored in dumps and uh, water collects inside of the uh, used tire and that makes for a great breeding uh, place for mosquitoes so uh, you know while most of us here in north america uh, don't give a second thought to to malaria but You should still recognize the fact that it is a killer in many places around the world, but luckily science has come up with medications that are effective. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's check news and we'll be right back. One more question for you guys. Uh, Why do cashiers in many large stores wear gloves and nothing to do with COVID-19? So why do cashiers in many large stores wear gloves? I think we have Laurie from La Chute on the line. Hi, Laurie. Lori? I think we lost Hello? Lori from Lachine. Oh, you are there. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Hello. Yes. Go We're ahead. Meantime. Oh, oh, you're there. I'm here, oh. yeah. Uh, yes. Don't listen to your radio. Just talk. So I think the answer you're looking for is Reiki, also used, known as universal life force energy. Yes, that is exactly it. It is Reiki. And uh, it comes from the Japanese word for universal on life energy. And uh, according to its practitioners, uh There's a form of energy that permeates our body that can stagnate. And And, uh, if there's been a physical injury or some kind of illness, uh, then this energy has to be unblocked or liberated. Uh, Most scientists, of course, think that this is total bunk. There's no evidence of there being any kind of life force or energy. Uh, There's no method that can detect any such energy flowing through the body. Uh, So what the Reiki practitioners do, it's pretty safe because they just hover their hands above the patient. So this is totally a non-contact treatment. So there's no risk associated with it. What is needed is the belief on part of the patient because essentially this is a mind over body situation and if you believe that it is going to help you in some way it just may there's nothing wrong with this kind of mind body reaction as long as you understand that there is nothing physical happening in the body in terms of treating the underlying condition so someone may be suffering from anxiety or or from pain And uh, if they believe that the hands hovering over their body is unblocking their energy channels, they may derive some benefit. The danger with all of these so called alternative therapies is that they can distract from treatments that can actually work. I think if they are being used in what is known as a complementary fashion alongside treatments that are evidence-based, then I don't think that there's any argument against it. However, that is very often not the case. And people will resort to these alternative modalities instead of what is proper uh, medical care. So Reiki is um, essentially a, a mythical treatment in the sense that there's no energy in the body that the flow of which can be improved by hovering your hands above the body but on the end if you believe that uh, doing this can cause some relaxation uh yeah you you may feel better just make sure that there is no underlying condition that remains uh, untreated okay so we've answered that one thank you uh so the question that we still have hanging out there is why cashiers in many large stores wear gloves and i can tell you that really it has nothing to do with COVID. so think about that one what would cause these cashiers to wear uh, gloves all right uh i keep telling you that there's so many interesting things in 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 the world of science to talk about so uh let me talk about a wrinkle what kind of wrinkle well okay here's the story it's as smooth as a baby's behind hey that's the ultimate compliment to the skin right because a baby's bottom is silky smooth Why is a baby's bottom silky smooth? Because it hasn't been exposed to the sun. As we age, our skin gets more and more wrinkly, usually in direct proportion to the amount of time spent in the sun. Photo aging is the direct cause of many a fine wrinkle. Can we do anything about these telltale signs of advancing age? Well, Maybe there's something to be learned from Cleopatra, from French aristocrats, and from uh, Polynesian women. Cleopatra used to bathe, at least, that's what the legend tells us, in donkey milk. This may not have been as nonsensical as it sounds, providing that the milk was sour. Why? Because spoiled milk contains lactic acid. A substance which, according to uh, proper research, can actually erase some wrinkles. Lactic acid is part of a family of compounds called alpha hydroxy acids that can peel away the top layers of the skin, exposing the fresh, younger skin below because your skin turns over all the time. Right. uh, Cells on the surface of the skin eventually die and are replaced with new healthy cells from below. Tartaric acid found in wine serves the same purpose, thereby perhaps explaining 18th century French courtesans' penchant for bathing in Chablis. Sugarcane also contains an alpha hydroxy acid. That's called glycolic acid. Could that be the reason for the age-old Polynesian practice of rubbing the skin with sugarcane? Alpha-hydroxy acids have already been incorporated into all kinds of commercial creams. Neostrata is an example, contains 8% glycolic acid. A number of people have reported success in erasing fine wrinkles with such products, uh, but it uh, may take a few months of daily treatment. Alpha-hydroxy acids are non-toxic. Furthermore, they do not sensitize the skin to sunlight, like Retin-A. That's the other effective wrinkle removing product. There are suggestions that alpha hydroxy acids actually work best in combination with retin-A. The latest alpha hydroxy acid to be tested is ammonium lactate, which is available commercially as hydrin. And some double blind studies have shown this product to be effective against photo damaged wrinkles in as little as a month. The effect will last only as long as the product is being used nevertheless it may be worthwhile to ask your dermatologist about the use of alpha hydroxy acids then ask him or her what the molecular structure of an alpha hydroxy looks like see if they remember their organic chemistry because after all their practice is totally built upon it so the maybe here we have taken out a wrinkle from your life and as i said at least with these alpha hydroxy acid there is some evidence whereas when you go and around the cosmetic counters and in department stores they will try to sell you all kinds of products some with outrageous prices which are good moisturizing creams but they don't have anything in there that can have an effect on on wrinkles. The cosmetic industry is one that uh, is built on hype and hope with a touch of science. And that touch of science just may be the alpha hydroxy acids. You're listening to the Dr. Joe show. We have one question still outstanding. Why it is that cashiers in uh, supermarkets and in very large stores where they uh, handle a lot of customers and are constantly punching that cash register, why do they wear gloves? If you know the answer, 514 or you can text your answer to five one four eight hundred. But right now we'll do our final check on traffic. I think we have Patricia on the line. Hi, Patricia. Patricia. I think we're waiting for Patricia. Hello. Hi. Go ahead. Yeah. Don't I'm, listen I'm, to I'm your radio. Don't listen to your radio. Okay. Go oh, ahead. yeah. What about the cat? About the grub? About for the what? Cat? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> About Oh my god. Yeah, I just wanted to answer okay. your question. Wow, to the question well. Pretty logical. What's the question? I I I don't hear what you're saying. I don't understand. Okay. Okay, I think we'll hang up on that one. Let's go to Barbara from Point Claire. Oh god. Barbara. Well, I, I've been here a long time. Yeah. Well, talk then. I don't know. Maybe we have some technical well, uh, issue name, here. Barbara. I'm sure. Yes, Barbara, you're on the air. Speak. Not really. It's just. okay i think we we have some sort of issue here that uh, i can't uh correct maybe the operator can fix it all right anyway uh the answer to the uh question i'm i'm sure both these ladies would have it and and i've had a number of those uh, answers as well by by text uh, the reason that they wear gloves is because the thermal paper in the cash register uh is developed with a chemical called bisphenol a and bisphenol a is one of those substances that falls into the category of endocrine disruptors so let me tell you about those the term was actually coined in 1991 by a diverse group of 21 experts who had assembled at the wingspread conference center in racine wisconsin why because they wanted to assess the capacity of industrial and agricultural chemicals to interfere with hormonal activity in wildlife and in humans. The, uh, sort of the, the issue had originally been raised back in 1962 by Rachel Carson. You know her, her classic book, Silent Spring? It had called attention to the harmful effects of pesticides on wildlife and uh, including uh, DDT, which was a widely used pesticide at the time. And she had noticed that it had an effect on the reproductive capabilities in birds. Well, that book inspired extensive research into chemicals that were released into the environment. And these led a wildlife biologist by the name of Theodora Colborne to organize the Wingspread Conference and it was so-called because it was held at the Wingspread Conference Center, as I said in Wisconsin, because she had observed some abnormalities in animals uh, in the Great Lakes region. There were male birds that were growing ovarian tissues, female birds were growing excessive oviduct tissue, and there were fish that were found to have both male and female reproductive organs. So the question was, you know, what was, what was going on here? And the scientists at the conference uh, were aware that a chemical called diethylstilbestrol or DES, which was a synthetic estrogen mimic that had been prescribed between 1940 and 1971 to prevent miscarriage in women. Unfortunately, daughters born to these women showed an increased risk of a rare form of vaginal cancer. They also exhibited an altered immune response and had reduced fertility later in life. Now, these effects were similar to those found in wildlife and also in laboratory animals that were exposed to industrial chemicals with estrogen-like effects. And this suggested that these chemicals can also pose a risk to us, to people. Well, the Tufts University scientist, Dr. Anna Soto, was also invited to this conference because she had made a remarkable observation And that had steered her research into the field of endocrine disruptors. Uh, Dr. Soto's group had been studying the effects of estrogen on the multiplication of breast cancer cells and discovered that a solution that had no estrogen in it still behaved as if it did contain some of this hormone. And after months of experiments, she discovered that the solution was leaching nonophenol from the plastic test tube in which it was stored. And nonylphenol is an antioxidant, it's added to some plastics to prevent breakdown, and as Dr. Soto discovered, it has estrogen-like properties. Her concern was further raised on learning that this compound is also used in the formulation of detergents and spermicidal creams. And that was enough motivation to seek out other hormone-like chemicals to which people were exposed. And the result was a landmark publication that she wrote together with Theo Colborn and University of Missouri professor Frederick Momsal in 1993. And they listed a number of endocrine disruptors, including various herbicides, insecticides, industrial chemicals, such as PCBs and phthalates. And then in the three decades since that paper was published, there's been an explosion of research into endocrine disruptors bisphenol a which is found in the cash register receipts as i said but is also used to produce polycarbonate plastics and also used in the epoxy linings in canned foods those were added to the list also perfluoroalkyl substances the pfas that you read about Uh, flame retardants uh, parabens which is a preservative Uh, Oxybenzone, a sunscreen, all of these made the list. And it turns out that these compounds, by behaving like estrogen, mimicking estrogen in the body, can actually have some negative effects. And there have been a lot of studies done on this. Literally thousands of papers have been published on endocrine uh, disruptors. Now, most of them, of course, uh, done on animals or or in in the laboratory, but there also have been some studies where they examined human blood and uh, discovered high levels of these endocrine disruptors that then were found to be associated with uh, various conditions such as type 2 diabetes, uh, such as obesity. Uh, But of course, I have to point out that an association could never prove a cause and effect relationship. Nevertheless, it is enough to to make us pay attention to this and try to limit exposure to these endocrine disruptors. The only problem is that our life is a wash in these substances because they are present in so so many products. Uh, as I said, BPA is found in in plastics, phthalates are are uh so-called plasticizers that are used to make uh, hard plastics soft and and pliable the PFASs, because of their oil resistant and water resistant properties are found in all kinds of food packaging including pizza boxes and the little bags in which you get french fries so we are all awash in these chemicals we don't know for sure that they're doing harm but chances are that they are not particularly good for us So that's why industry is working on reducing our exposure by preventing the release of these substances into the environment. So there's a little uh, short course for you in endocrine uh, disruptors, uh, which we have been now researching for, you know, well over uh, 30 years. And I suspect we will continue researching them uh, in the foreseeable future because answers are difficult to come by but we have come to the end of the show so once again it is time to sign off but rest assured we'll be back with you same time same station next week and for all of our jewish listen- listeners who are uh, going to be observing the fast tomorrow uh, it is the holiday of yom kippur when it is time to look back on our life and see what we did wrong and what we should do better have an easy fast we'll see you all right here next week i'm George schwartz hope all the chemistry in life comes out just right